Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. If there's one thing we know, it's that for tens of millions of people, young and old alike, the pandemic has meant staring at themselves on video conferencing tools like Zoom more than almost any human can endure. And for teens, this disembodied screen time added to the isolation and anxiety of the pandemic may be contributing to more disordered eating. We'll talk with doctors about the surge in adolescent eating disorders during the pandemic, the possible causes of this wave of mental health problems, and the remarkable lack of available services for teens. That's all next on Forum, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Parents have all worried about their kids during the pandemic. It's been such a weird time, so many normal routines disrupted. After years of worry about screen time, screens became the only means of schooling in many places and the safest way to interact with friends. But during this unprecedented experiment in human social interaction, some young people's relationships with their bodies have taken a turn for the worse, leading to a rise in eating disorders among teens. So joining us now to talk about what they're seeing is Dr. Jason Nagata, Assistant Professor of Pediatrics in the Division of Adolescent and Young Adult Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. Welcome, Dr. Nagata. Thanks so much for having me. And Dr. Samantha DeCaro, who has been researching and lecturing on the intersection of social media and eating disorders. She is the Director of Clinical Outreach and Education for the Renfrew Center, a national network of eating disorder treatment facilities. Welcome, Dr. DeCaro. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Dr. Nagata, you've seen a marked increase in eating disorder hospitalizations at UCSF. Can you just kind of tell us what you've seen over the course of the pandemic? Yeah, it's really heartbreaking that since the beginning of the pandemic, we've really experienced a surge in referrals for eating disorders among teens. Um, And overall, the number of adolescents and young adults who need to be hospitalized at UCSF has more than doubled since the start of the pandemic. Um, This is reflective of national numbers, uh, national data increase, also a more than doubling of teenagers for eating disorders across the country, um, even a tripling in Boston. Um, And similarly, the National Eating Disorders Association has reported that they've had a 78% increase um, in people calling its helpline during the pandemic. 
Wow. And when we talk about doubling, can you give us a sense of the scale of this? Is it like 10 to 20, 50 to 100? Like, how, how can we think about the size of this problem? Yeah. So for teenagers who need to be hospitalized, that means that they're having a life-threatening condition with, um, you know, heart rate instability or vital sign instability or kind of life-threatening lab mm -hmm. So it's really a small percentage of those who actually have eating disorders. It's really the sickest. Um, yeah. I would say before the pandemic at UCSF, on average, you would have about four teenagers at any given time who needed to be hospitalized. Um, and that average has increased to over eight patients at a time uh, mm -hmm. at UCSF. And so this is, again, just one medical center. You know, there are other uh, specialty centers throughout California. Um, but, you know, that number has continued to increase. I was just um, on the hospital service this past week, and that number has even risen more to like 15 or so. Wow. And how does that compare against the other eating disorders for children and teens during the pandemic? Uh, I think across the board, we've seen an increase in, in of diverse types of eating disorders, both restrictive eating disorders like anorexia nervosa, um, but then also like overeating disorders like binge eating disorders. So uh, I think it's affected teens in many different ways. Yeah. Dr. DeCaro, um, nationally, what can we say about how eating disorders and mental health generally are related and specifically in this pandemic, how they've been related? That's a great question. We often say eating disorders so rarely travel alone. So it's very rare that we see someone, especially maybe at the residential level of care, where they're only coming in with an eating disorder. And that could be because there are comorbid diagnoses um, that are present pre-existing the eating disorder, but malnourishment um, and the symptoms of the eating disorder can actually worsen pre-existing mental health conditions and also bring on new ones. So we often see anxiety, depression, OCD, um, PTSD, all of these are very common, including substance use and abuse. And the pandemic has just created an additional stressor. Um, and so we're also seeing mental health issues from the stress of the pandemic because we're dealing with collective trauma, collective grief and loss. And so all of this comes together and um, there are many issues that we need to address in the eating disorder treatment. Yeah. Before the pandemic, like going in, what were the long-term trends uh, with eating disorders among teens? That's a good question. So um, before the pandemic, we were seeing, of course, I mean, when we talk about adolescents and teens, that's usually the onset of an eating disorder um, for most eating disorders. And so um, we were seeing a lot of adolescents and teens come in struggling with body image, struggling um, with anxiety and depression, maybe stress from school, um, stress from a transition, a change, maybe going off to college or going off to high school for the first time, even puberty can be a change that's a stressor. Um, and so that was very common, but now, you know, through the pandemic, what we're seeing is there has been so much change and transition, so many stressors. Um, these teens and adolescents, their world has been turned upside down at home, at school, socially. And so we're just dealing with such an intense 
uh, environment that these adolescents and teens are trying to navigate. And then also the stress that maybe their family members in the home are trying to navigate mm -hmm. as well. So there might be conflict and stress within the family. Um, and so we're really not only treating the regular uh, transitions and changes that adolescents and teens have to experience, but also all of the issues that come along with a, with a global pandemic. Yeah. Dr. Nagata, there's been an increasing awareness of mental health, particularly among young people, at least from what I have seen. And we also have a lot of teens and younger people who are sort of stuck at home with their parents. Do we think that the increased sort of diagnosis of these eating disorders and getting treatment for those eating disorders is because there's a greater prevalence of these uh, disorders or because parents are actually just paying closer attention to their children because they're there at home with them? Yeah, I think that that's a really great question. Um, and I think that it's a little bit of both. Um, I agree with um, all the other points that Dr. DeCaro mentioned, um, you know, certainly the increased social isolation, um, the disruptions in teens' normal routines and schooling and sports, that has obviously had a huge toll on, on teenagers. But I think you're right that part of the increased recognition of eating disorders during the pandemic could be that you know many teens were at home all day and eating meals uh, with their families, you know, all day or or lack of eating meals with their families. And you know, parents may not have been aware if their teenagers were skipping meals um, or like you know not eating for long periods of time or over exercising if they were out and about you know in high school. But now that they are you know, basically stuck at home and parents are able to sort of monitor a little bit more closely what they're actually taking in. I do think that, um, you know, that is also a, a component of, of this rise is that maybe more parents are just spending more time with their kids and aware now that, oh, like, you know, my kid just went out for a, you know, for a three hour workout or like just went out running for three hours, like after lunch and after dinner. And that, you know, I didn't quite realize that before. Mm -hmm. So I that, um, an increased awareness is definitely, um, is definitely a component. Um, and I also think that we'll talk about this a little bit later, I think, but, you know, one of the tenets of treatment, um, of eating disorders is family-based treatment, um, which includes family therapy, um, and really having the parents, um, support their teenagers and getting all their meals and snacks. Um, and in some ways that actually has, uh, made some of those components easier, um, because, it's a little bit more normalized to have all of your meals at home with, with families. Mm. You know, I also, Dr. Nagata, wanted to ask you about some of the myths of eating disorders. You know, a lot of the prominent stories about eating disorders have centered on white women, but we also know that, that all types of people can suffer from eating disorders. Could you tell us a, a little bit more about what we know about the distribution of disordered eating across different populations? Yeah, I think it's really important to raise awareness for parents and teachers and teens that eating disorders can really affect people of all genders, of all sexual orientations, all races, ethnicities, sizes, and even socioeconomic classes. Um, as you mentioned, I think there is a stereotype perhaps in the media or just in common perception that eating disorders primarily affect, um, you know, Caucasian women who are very thin, but in fact, um, you know, they can affect people of all sizes and of, of all, all backgrounds. Um, actually, one of my areas of 
research and expertise is eating disorders in, in boys and men. And that's a population that's very under-recognized. Um, I think traditionally people think of eating disorders as being a very feminized disease, but actually up to a third of people with eating disorders are boys or men. Um, and some of the concerns uh, with body image and disordered eating can still affect men and still lead to life-threatening medical complications. Um, but I think that this population is really underserved. Often by the time that we get a referral for a boy with an eating disorder, they're usually much more severe in their illness and in their um, disordered eating behaviors by the time they get referrals, because often people kind of miss it in, in these populations. Um, I'll also say that at UCSF, we care for a really diverse patient population. So on average, I'd say a third of our patients are like Latino or Latina, Spanish speaking, um, you know, on public insurance. Um, in the Bay Area, we also have a very large Asian American population. Um, so definitely fact, can affect people of all backgrounds. Yeah. Does the language show up differently in talking about their bodies with boys than it does with other genders? Yeah, that's also a great question. I, I think that um, the body image issues that can affect boys and men can be a little bit different sometimes than, than, than girls. The, the idealized feminized body image is often portrayed as thin, um, whereas the idealized male boss body image is often muscular and lean. And so often we have boys who are actually, rather than trying to lose a lot of weight, they're actually trying to bulk up and be really muscular. Um, and so that can actually lead to a different set of behaviors. Um, you know, the traditional eating disorder behaviors that people think about are fasting for long periods of time or skipping meals um, or vomiting or, or using laxatives. But uh, in boys, they might be actually using performance enhancing substances or mm. steroids and, and stuff like that. So it, there are different considerations often in boys. We're talking about the sharp rise in eating disorders among teens with Dr. Jason Nagata, professor of pediatrics at UCSF, and Dr. Samantha DeCaro, director of clinical outreach at the Renfrew Center. Have you or a young person you know struggled with an eating disorder during the pandemic? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. We want to hear from you. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. We'll be back with more after the break. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the sharp rise in eating disorders among teens with Dr. Jason Nagata, assistant professor of pediatrics at UCSF, and Dr. Samantha DeCaro, director of clinical outreach and education with the Renfrew Center, a national network of eating disorder treatment facilities. And we just want to invite you into the conversation, too. We know this is a topic that is very personal for many people. Have you or a young person you know struggled with an eating disorder during the pandemic? And do you have thoughts about how technology and social media might be influencing the mental health of teens, particularly during the pandemic? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Of course, you can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or if you want, you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Um, Dr. DeCarlo, I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the causes of the of the current moment. You know, obviously there have been media messages about thinness and ideal bodies reaching back for a long time. You know, television and movies. I mean, famous for reinforcing you know these images. Uh, 
So what's different about the image-based media we have now and the influence that it may be having on our teens? Yeah, that's such a good question. The thin ideal has been around forever, it seems like. Um, what's different now? I, I think that um, people are spending more time on social media. I think that's part of it, especially with this pandemic. Um, you know, social media has been a blessing and a curse at the same time. And so I think people are seeing their image reflected back to them um, more so than pre-pandemic times. And also, I think there's more comparison. And so with eating disorders, we know comparison is really part of the territory. Um, those with eating disorders um, and those with poor body image are very tempted to compare body parts and compare size to other images. And so when we look at some of the research, what we see is that those folks who are using social media primarily to compare rather than to connect, this is when we start to see problems with body image and issues with self-esteem. Um, so I do think it's twofold. I think, you know, it's not only the image of ourselves reflected back to us, uh, through FaceTime, through Zoom, um, but also just so much more access to images of others. Yeah. I've also wondered, just in my own experience, like if I watch somebody doing CrossFit or lifting weights or something, the next thing I know, the next like 40 things I see are just like totally ripped guys <laughs> doing doing just that. And you think like, God, does everyone look like this in the world? That's a great point. Um, and I think, you know, one of the presentations I'll be doing um, for the Renfrew Conference is on social media and eating disorder recovery. And what we know about social media is that the algorithm is designed in a way that it knows what you're looking at. It knows how long you're looking at something. So if you're someone with an eating disorder um, who maybe is looking at certain types of images, um, food, exercise, um, things like that, your algorithm is going to figure that out pretty quickly and your entire feed is going to give you what it thinks you want. And so that can, you know, be, there can be positives and negatives to this because if you're using social media to help with recovery, if you're following body positive accounts, if you're following therapists and qualified dietitians who are actually giving helpful facts and advice, that can be really valuable. But if you're sort of going down the rabbit hole and comparing yourself and trying to find unqualified influencers to tell you what to eat in a day, that's going to cause some issues for you. Whether you have an eating disorder or not, I think you can end up getting some really unhelpful advice. Dr. Nagata, in treating the people that you treat here in the Bay Area, how do you help them manage their social media usage, particularly during this time when it has not been easy to connect, you know, in three-dimensional space with, with friends? Yeah, that's a really um, excellent question. And I, I do have to say it's not a one-size-fits-all. As you, uh, as Dr. DeCaro mentioned, you know, there are many um, benefits of so of social media and screen time, especially during the pandemic, you know, for use for connection, um, especially at times when it's not possible to, you know, be in physically interacting with other people. It is, it can be a really great way to um, keep connected with friends and, um, and networks. And so I think that it's not so much the um, like amount of time as it is like the quality of the time that you're spending. And so some, 
just general advice that we give for teenagers is, you know, really to think about what benefits they're getting from it and what are some of the risks or, or the um, side effects from social media. And so if they are using it to connect with friends, you know, for schooling um, or even to, you know, like physical activity classes these days are, are often, um, you know, through Zoom, uh, you know, those can all be positive things to help with coping during the pandemic. But if you're doing some of the behaviors like, uh, like was mentioned, like if you're just constantly checking other people's accounts um, and comparing yourself or your bodies with them, you know, that can just lead to a lot of dysregulation and dissatisfaction. And definitely the people that we're seeing who are almost like addicted to social media. And it is, you know, these algorithms are meant to be addictive. Um, those are the ones that we, you know, try to give more advice to parents to maybe to set some more limits or, or talk with their child about, you know, um, maybe a family media use plan. Like, uh, you know, maybe we won't use social media, you know, an hour before going to bed or during meals at certain parts of the day, or maybe trying to have screen-free times during the day. Um, those are all possible um, tips, but I, I do think that it's not a one-size-fits-all. So the American Academy of Pediatrics now suggests actually making an individualized family media use plan, which involves kind of sitting down with your family and talking about, you know, when it's appropriate to use and when it's not appropriate to use and kind of all agreeing on it and then holding each other accountable for it. And I will say that um, parents, you know, need to be good examples to their kids, because if you tell your kid, uh, you know, we're not going to have phones during meals, but you're texting at the dinner table, you know, a big influencer of child social media use or screen time use is actually parents. Yeah. Got to turn the look in the mirror, I guess. Uh, Dr. DeCaro, I, I did want to I, I don't want to pretend that this is some monocausal situation where social media alone is driving this. There's obviously the much larger context of the pandemic, social isolation, the the trauma that you mentioned, the grieving that people are doing. What are we not thinking about that may be causing kids to have more mental health problems? I mean, is it just the, the lack of control that lots of people feel in life right now because of the way that the pandemic has transformed our lives? Yeah, so I, I get this question a lot, uh, this question specifically about what causes eating disorders. And I just want to put it out there that there really is no one known cause. Usually what it is, it's really a perfect storm of factors that come together and create the perfect environment for an eating disorder to develop and to thrive. And so what we think, what we know, what we think we know about eating disorders is that we think that there's a genetic component to it. There's enough research out there that we agree on that. Um, there are psychological factors, cultural factors, um, systems of oppression that can also influence um, those who are at risk for eating disorders. Um, and so uh, really we're looking at many, many different factors. And of course the pandemic, yes, has, um, because I think of the increased isolation, because of the grief, the loss, um, the collective trauma, 
I think even those without eating disorders, those with anxiety or depression, um, they've experienced, and their I think their symptoms have um, been worsened by the conditions of the pandemic. Um, so there are many factors at play. Social media certainly isn't the only factor, although we know culture and media can be a part of uh, what might be maintaining eating disorder symptoms and other mental health issues. I want to add Annie, a young woman who's recovering from an eating disorder, to the conversation. We're only using her first name to protect her privacy because of the stigma associated with eating disorders. Um, But Annie, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on. You know, so from what I understand, you've been dealing with an eating disorder since you were quite young and in treatment for some years. Could you tell us how you came to understand what you were experiencing? Yeah, so I developed my eating disorder when I was very young. I was around eight years old, um, and I did not have access to treatment then. So it wasn't really until I was in college and I decided to seek out treatment for myself that I began to realize what I was struggling with. Um, I then moved to the Bay Area after college, and that's where I was able to access the doctors at UCSF, one of which was Dr. Nagata. And it was then that I really began my journey to recovery. Wow. How did you know that something was wrong? Like, how did you know that what was happening with your eating was something that you wanted to stop? Um, I think it just, it took up a lot of my life and it made me honestly very miserable. And it really started to affect my health. Um, I was a runner Um, in college and it particularly made me uh, fracture a lot of my bones because Mm. when you're restricting it can decrease your bone density and that was something that was really difficult Um, and it it was something that I had known for a while that I was struggling with but just didn't have the means to access any sort of treatment so once I was able to have access to that um, I was really fortunate to have the UCSF doctors to kind of lead me through that. Yeah. Do you consider yourself to be in recovery at this point? Yeah, I consider myself to be in recovery. I think for someone like me who's struggled for so long, there's not necessarily a definitive moment when you go from struggling to being recovered or in recovery. It's definitely a long process, but it's something that I'm always working on. Yeah. And how has the pandemic affected your mental health and and your eating? It's definitely affected me a lot. I think for me, um, the isolation has been really difficult. Something that I've always said, you know, with my other friends who struggle, we talk about how eating disorders thrive in secrecy and the pandemic has really just made, um, Mm. you know, the the perfect Mm -hmm. storm for that. Um, Mm. Yeah. So knowing what you know now, and we have some parents who are on the line that we're going to get to, knowing what you know now, What would you tell young people or parents who may be going through some of the same struggles? Yeah, I think for for kids, I would say to really take it seriously. Um, And if you can seek out treatment, the sooner you do it, the better. Um, It is something very serious. And I know people who have died from this. So I think having access to treatment is definitely a privilege. And if you have that to really utilize it. And then for parents, it can be very difficult to have someone you love struggling with an eating disorder. And I think something that can really help is to try to separate 
the child, you know, your child from their eating disorder as much as possible and look at it as any other sort of illness that you would be working with um, because it can really take over patient's mind in a way that's not them. And so being able to separate them from their disease is really important. Hey, thank you so much for sharing your experience with us, Annie. I know it can't be can't be easy to talk about on the air, and we really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. I want to add Maria from Oakland, caller Maria, uh, into the conversation. Hi, Maria. Hello. Good morning. Hopefully, you can hear me. Okay. We can. I can can definitely hear you. Good. Um, so first of all, thank you so much. This has been on my mind in the last few weeks or maybe months uh, because I've seen a, a few signs of uh, possibly an, eater, an eating disorder in my son, who's uh, 17, mm. and um, specifically vomiting. I've uh, confronted him, and he flat out denies it, even though I've had pretty much the evidence in my hands. Mm. And so everything that the doctors have shared so far, including the, the recent guest, right, it's all super helpful, right, in just kind of learning more about it. But specifically, my question is how, like in my particular case, right, someone who's just denying it, like how, how what's the best approach? How can I help my son? Mm. Dr. Nagata? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, I just wanted to say it's, I, I know it's really challenging, but I think that I can tell that you really care about your son. Um, and it's, it's good that you have identified this. And, and I do think that as, as Annie mentioned, the first step is, you know, getting professional help as well. Um, so I think that, you know, even going to his pediatrician or his primary care doctor to let them know, um, you know, about the things that you've been noticing that, have been worrying you, um, you know, vomiting in itself can actually be quite dangerous because, um, you know, it can, there's a lot of acid in your stomach. And so that can, um, you know, lead to like esophageal tears. It can also um, have, you know, you can basically vomit up really important electrolytes. And so I think it is important that as a first step, yeah, he got checked out by the doctor just to check some labs and vitals. Um, and then that, physician can help you to get into, um, to make referrals, to, to get more specialty care. Um, and so I do think that getting help as soon as you are able to is a, is a good first step. Dr. Nakata, is there a way of opening the conversation up with kids who you're not sure if they do or don't have disordered eating, but you, you're just worried? Yeah, as um, I think as Annie mentioned, you know, these eating disorders like thrive in secrecy. And so I do think that, uh, you know, it, it would be worth trying to have an open, like kind of open-ended discussion with, with your son, you know, mentioning why you may be worried and, and asking if, you know, what's going on. Um, but sometimes those conversations are, are difficult to have. And sometimes, um, as Annie mentioned, like the eating disorder sometimes can be even separate from, from your son or whatever, or it may be like, you know, often these, these behaviors, people are, there's a lot of stigma related to them. And so they may not want to open up. If, if they are able to, then, you know, that's great. But I do think that that's where if you are having these concerns, but, and you're concerned that there are some things that are going on that, um, that may be hidden from you. Um, I do think that getting like a therapist or professional um, to have a confidential discussion with, 
with your child may also be helpful. But I, I do think it's worth ask, asking in an open-ended way to start. Yeah. Uh, a listener writes, as someone with an eating disorder in the 1970s, I did considerable research. I'm wondering whether the disorder is still associated with a need for control and whether eating disorders are still associated with perfectionist personalities. Dr. DeCaro? Yes. So um, great. This is a great question. Um, I think it's not uncommon for us to see, you know, folks with eating disorders, oftentimes what they are telling us in the therapy room is that, yes, the eating disorder can give a false sense of control. It can give a false sense of identity. Um, and it's also not uncommon to see certain types of temperament. Um, so in the research, um, there are certain, you know, you, you think about babies, you know, there's um, difficult babies, uh, there are babies that are easy and maybe babies that are slower to warm. And so temperament is sort of something that is just inherent in us. And so perfectionism, type A personalities, um, you know, uh, those uh, who are very harm avoidant could be at higher risk for certain types of eating disorders. Um, and then also those with temperament who um, maybe are more impulsive or seek out novelty, um, things like that might be connected more to uh, other types of eating disorders um, like bulimia or binge eating disorders. So yes, personality is definitely, personality and temperament um, can be a part of the territory. Um, so, and yes, and we hear a lot about control as well. We're talking about the sharp rise in eating disorders among teens during the pandemic with Dr. Samantha DeCaro, Director of Clinical Outreach and Education with the Renfrew Center, and Dr. Jason Nagata, Assistant Professor of Pediatrics, University of California, San Francisco Division of Adolescent and Young Adult Medicine. And we do want to hear from you. Have you or a young person you know struggled with an eating disorder? Give us a call, 866-733-6786. We'll be back with more Forum after the break. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the sharp rise in eating disorders among teens with Dr. Jason Nagata, professor at UCSF in adolescent and young adult medicine, and Dr. Samantha DeCaro, director of clinical outreach and education at the Renfrew Center, a national network of eating disorder treatment facilities. I want to add caller David in San Diego to the conversation. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Good morning. Go ahead. What's your story, David? So um, our son is in recovery from a severe eating disorder. He was one of the kids that the doctor at UCSF was talking about. He needed to be hospitalized. Mm. And uh, that was back in October. And um, thankfully, you know, we're, we're well on our way through recovery. And he's a great kid. And we love him very much. And um, the thing that, you know, and thanks for the doctors for coming on. Everything that they've been talking about has really been spot on. And I think that one of the things that struck us as we were going through this process is the conspicuous lack of awareness about eating disorders as a mental illness, uh, the, and as well as the lack of resources available to the general public as far as treatment. Um, you know, there's a lot of cases where kids uh, go into the hospital because they're literally starving to death and they get out and they don't have anything available to them. And so I think what my question to you and to the doctors is what can we as a community do to really 
raise awareness and, you know, kind of get people on board with the fact that this is just, you know, this is how the world is. And yeah. kids are, you know, kids in the pandemic are getting eating disorders as we are now knowing it. You know, what can we do to, to get the word out? Yeah. And David, I'm glad your son is on the road to recovery. And I'm sorry, your fam's been going through that. And it's got to be it's got to be very tough. And Dr. Uh, Nagata, I, I think the, the larger question is we don't have enough teen mental health services do we? I mean, it seems like there's there's waiting lists and it's very difficult for, for some teens to access mental health services. Dr. Nagata. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. And I, I do think that actually one component of that potentially explains this rise in eating disorders, other than the things that we've already mentioned, is actually this really lack of mental health support and funding, um, you know, across the board uh, that, you know, our health system really has not been, is not equipped to, to handle. And so um, as, as was mentioned, we have, um, you know, teenagers who are severely ill, who need to be hospitalized um, and then trying to get them into therapy, especially one who's uh, with a therapist who specializes in eating disorders um, are like few and far between many insurance companies don't cover that. And so we have heard from families that there are, you know, month-long wait lists to, to get into care. Um, and in general, I think that this, this reflects the overall mental health landscape in, in the U.S. We actually did a study using census data during the pandemic that looked at people who reported anxiety and depression symptoms. And actually a quarter of them um, reported that they needed help but weren't able to access therapy or counseling during the pandemic. Um, so it's really... Um, a tragedy that it, it, our health system just doesn't have enough providers, doesn't have enough resources um, for that kind of individualized care. Um, one thing that has been very interesting during the pandemic is actually the rise in like telehealth, just like you can have Zoom classes, you can actually have Zoom therapy and even in some cases, Zoom medical visits. Um, and so that has um, helped a little bit in that uh, we have many like patients in the Bay Area who if all the Bay Area um, therapists are are booked, um, you know, with Zoom, you can basically have a therapist from anywhere. And so we have lots of providers or people who are seeing providers like in LA or San Diego. Um, and so that, and especially for people who are like in rural areas where previously they would have had to drive several hours to get to an appointment, um, you know, as long as they have internet access, um, are able to access care in that way. So I do think that the rise in telehealth has, has helped a little bit with that, but but still, it's not enough. You know, I want to stay with this theme of the difficulty of finding care right now. And I want to add Samantha from San Francisco to the conversation. Samantha, can you hear us? Yeah. Oh, great. Go ahead. Hi. Um, so we have a 15-year-old daughter who is in treatment for an eating disorder that um, really kind of bloomed during the pandemic, although probably started beforehand. And... Um, we have great insurance and we're at Kaiser and we have an excellent pediatrician and an excellent nutritionist, but finding that mental uh, health piece of it has been really hard. Um, we're doing family-based therapy right now, but my husband and I are not therapists and we're not um, eating disorder specialists. And um, 
not only do we not have direct support for just the two of us in helping our daughter through it, this, but it's been a really long road in getting her regular therapy with an eating disorder specialist. Um, we finally, after months and months, have someone, and but we're not sure it's the right person. It's a telehealth situation because there's nobody in San Francisco available. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just wanted to um, bring up that piece of it. And also as a question, um, we are doing family-based therapy and, you know, it's, it's a roller coaster and it's the hardest thing we've ever been through parenting wise by mm-hmm. far. It is really, really hard. And um, my question for the doctors is like, how do you know if you're at the stage where you need, where family-based therapy is no longer working and your child needs some sort of, um, you know, uh, hospital-based or in uh, clinic-based program? Samantha, can I ask why the family-based therapy has been so hard? Um, I think, well, we've just, I mean, everybody's busy. <laughs> There's mm-hmm. been these immense waiting lists. Um, that, you know, I won't, why don't we don't need to go into um, Kaiser's mental health services, but, you know, um, it's hard to just get a steady therapist from mm-hmm. them. That's I not see. quite the way they operate. So they refer out. But all of the eating disorder um, clinics are full. So they literally gave us one person in the entire Bay Area that could see my daughter. And it was not a great fit. So then we had to start over and try and get another one. And we got one other referral. So it's just, um, I think, you know, it's a symptom of how prevalent this issue is in in some ways. Dr. Descartes, what are people's other options if going through the traditional healthcare route is, is not working? Are there things that people can do at home? And when do they know that it's time to really amp up the level of treatment that they're trying to get for their family? Yes. Oh, I just want to say my heart goes out to you. Um, I know this is so difficult. You're trying to get help for your child. Um, you know, I... I usually um, refer parents to the NIDA website. Um, It's the National Eating Disorders Association. And I really think there's wonderful resources on there. There's a lot of reading um, that parents can do. And I always encourage parents to try to educate yourself as much as you can about eating disorders. Um, And um, to just try to keep an eye out, I think, for maybe there are some free support groups, or um, I know there are some eating disorder facilities that do offer some free groups um, to even prospective patients um, or just others in the community, people in the community who are interested in learning more about eating disorders um, or just want support. Um, But it is really difficult. And um, I do agree with Dr. Nagata that I think virtual therapy has helped somewhat, um, but still is more is needed. And I think what we're doing in our organization, we're trying um, to train clinicians um, and, and dietitians so that they can better work with eating disorders. So there's we, there's really such a push in the field to try and train and educate folks so that they can catch eating disorders early and treat them um, at all levels of care. So, yeah, it's been really difficult. I'm going to uh, read some of these listener uh, comments back to back and then come back to a, a couple questions. One listener tweets, as if teens weren't already fixated on their appearance and identity, We've created a monster with social media, screens and screenshots, profiles, likes and follows. It perpetuates a shallow 
sense of self. These online identities simultaneously hold power and zero depth. Another listener writes, being in the high-risk category and living alone during the months and months of isolation and solitude, I felt a real sense of deprivation. No interaction with others, no family visits, no holidays or special occasion celebrations or gatherings, enforced solitude. As a result, when ordering groceries for delivery, I found myself ordering savory snack and sugary dessert-type items to treat my deprived self, foods I generally avoid like the plague. Now I'm working to lose the pounds of pandemic padding that resulted Elizabeth, uh, Jessica tweets, regarding eating disorders, I haven't heard much discussion around compulsive overeating, and we'll come back to that in just one second. Elizabeth writes, hello, I have two young teenage daughters who suffered some depression and anxiety during the pandemic quarantine, and due to that, I have noticed a loss of appetite. Now that they're going back to in-school, in-person school, I'm seeing I'm having a hard time getting into a healthy meal routine. I don't want to pressure them and create a control problem around eating, but I'm concerned any suggestions? And the question I want to put to you, Dr. Nagata, that sees, kind of bubbles out of several of these comments is, how, how do we get to healthy eating, <laughs> you know, in, in that sense for people who maybe are on the, the border, not between, you know, having an eating disorder and needing to be hospitalized for it, but sort of not eating healthily and having an eating disorder? Yeah, that's a really great question. I think it's a really slippery slope because... Um, you know, to some extent, all of us are exposed or experience these pressures for body ideals, but not everyone does that develops, you know, a full-blown eating disorder. But in the absence of that, many people may engage in dieting behaviors or, uh, you know, intermittent fasting, or some of these trends are, are very popular and, you know, do have some overlap with, with some of the behaviors that people with eating disorders might, might have. Um, I think that the slippery slope really comes down when, you know, the concerns about appearance or body size or weight, like you start to become really a preoccupation or a fixation in a way that really takes over someone's life or, or worsens their quality of life. Um, and, you know, eating disorders are really challenging because there's mo- both a mental health component, um, but then there's also, you know, these really important physical health risks that can be life-threatening. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of it in terms of the mental health piece is, not so much the behavior itself, but how it makes one feel or, or how it, um, you know, really influences a, a, quali- a person's quality of life. And so I think that just as a, as a general trend, we really try to um, discourage teens from, from, you know, really engaging in any kind of um, restrictive diets or, or anything like that. And just trying to have a pretty normal schedule, like three meals, three snacks, not skipping any meals. Um, and, uh, and I do think that uh, if there are concerns, like family meals can sometimes be helpful. It, uh, as we mentioned, it helps families to monitor. Um, it also may be, um, you know, just time, time together with family that can be supportive and therapeutic, especially, um, you know, for people who are, are, are experiencing isolation. Um, so, the other thing that I think thought was interesting from from some of the comments that you you mentioned were the um, some people struggling actually with overeating during the pandemic, um, and one thing that we haven't mentioned yet um, is that while there are these links with social media and um, eating disorders and and restrictive eating, um, we actually also did a study that looked at um, binge eating and screen time and and actually overall teenagers who spend more time watching television. Or, or just sitting in front of screens all day are actually more likely to snack and overeat while they're distracted in front of the screens 
And there's sort of a link between like binge watching Netflix and binge eating, um, you know, foods. And so we also are seeing, while on the one hand, there are some teens who are really restricting their food intake. Um, we also are seeing some teens who are really overeating. And there's this sort of uh, colloquial term called the quarantine 15, you know, kind of like the freshman 15 for people who go to college and, and gain weight in their freshman year, that during the quarantine, many youth and, and people have really gained quite a bit of weight. And that has also led to other sort of health risks. Mm-hmm. I want to add Mariah from Redwood City into the conversation. Welcome to the show, Mariah. Hi there. Thanks for thanks for having for having me. Um, I just wanted to say I I grew up and I also suffered from an eating disorder. I I mean I still suffer from it. I still deal with it every single day. Um, and have a 12 year old. And during the I mean she's not on any social media at all. Doesn't have any you know Facebook accounts, Instagram, anything. Um, but but she's obsessed with all of these like K-pop idols and with K-pop in general. And we just thought it was sort of a, you know, fun, you know, um, a fun phase she was going through. And during the pandemic, um, we did notice that she, instead of, you know, going through puberty and gaining a little bit of weight, she was losing weight and wasn't eating dinner with us as much. And, um, and that obsession with looking perfect, like these, people that she sees on the screens all the time um, was becoming, you know, greater and greater. And I I just think that there is a huge link, not only to, yes, what you're seeing on the screens, but genetics and um, what really is underneath, Um, you know, like, I think a lot of this is anxiety. Like she's always dealt with anxiety. She's always dealt with a little bit of depression and um, you know, that manifests itself in, in, you know, this is how it manifests itself with her and uh, you know, my manifests itself through eating disorders and then through alcohol. And it's like, I think it just many people that deal with alcoholism also so many also have had eating disorders. So um, I think it's also just dealing with what is underneath um, and so, yeah, that's, that's yeah. sort of what I, what I wanted to say. So Mariah, thank you for, for sharing that with us. And sorry that you, that sounds really hard to me. I, I, I want to ask Dr. DeCaro, what do we know about eating disorders running within families, either for, you know, genetic or other reasons? Yeah, so um, we do believe there is a genetic component. Um, There's twin studies. um, There are various studies out there um, that point to uh, the evidence that that it seems to run in families. Um, But I want to really emphasize that, you know, parents and families can't cause an eating disorder. It's really just one piece of the puzzle that we think, um, you know, might might be part of the etiology and the maintenance of an eating disorder. Um, so that, that's what we believe, but there's also psychological factors, personality factors, cultural factors. I mean, we live in a culture with the thin ideal and fat phobia. And when you live in that sort of culture, uh, eating disorders can really thrive. So there are a lot of components at play. Dr. Nagata, last thoughts before we go on for parents out there. Yeah, I think just as has been mentioned by some of the parent callers, 
Um, I'm really grateful that you um, chose to highlight this issue and raise awareness um, for parents, teachers, people in the community who are listening. So if you do have a young person that you're concerned about, um, you know, do try to uh, get into care. The National Eating Disorder Association does have a hotline. Um, you know, primary care physicians are a good way to get referrals. Um, but yeah, please do take care and um, uh, take care of those young people if you have concerns. Parents out there, there's the National Eating Disorders Association, uh, which has many resources for you um, that you may want to find. We've been talking about the sharp rise in eating disorders among teens with Dr. Jason Nagata, Assistant Professor of Pediatrics at UCSF in the Division of Adolescent and Young Adult Medicine, as well as Dr. Samantha DeCaro, Director of Clinical Outreach and Education at the Renfrew Center, a national network of eating disorder treatment facilities. And we were also joined by Annie, a young woman who was recovering from an eating disorder earlier in the show. Thank you to all our guests, and stay tuned for another Hour of Forum with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.